Well, good morning. You know, I've been doing this for a long time, but uh, in front of this bunch, I'm a little nervous. And just want to say it's a delight to be here with the bishop, his precious wife, and uh, friends, goodness, friends through the years. Um, Daniel and Paula, goodness, went to school with them. And uh, I was, in fact, I, when you get my age, you have to write it down. <laughs> and I wrote down some of these names. Uh, when I was at Southwestern starting in 1969, somebody took a chance on me, Brother Lynn. Where's Brother Lynn at? There he is right there. And uh, took a chance on me and gave me an opportunity. And I hadn't seen him in years. Let me be his janitor. Let me be his uh, worship leader. I was the Sunday, a Sunday school teacher, uh, assistant pastor. And uh, he paid me $10 a week to be the assistant and $10 a week to do the janitorial work. Armin Stevens really <laughs> knew how to bless me financially. <laughs> uh, but Armin and Dee were just, did exactly what you, what you said. He mentored me, had, uh, had me sit in on the board meetings, everything, visit with him. Uh, and I would just tell Armin publicly that uh, today, if the ministry that I have today, I owe a lot to you. And I think it would be good to give Brother Armin Stevens a hand. Amen. Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, Dwight and Mary, good friends for many, many years. Uh, Ron, saw Ron here. Is Ron in the house? Ron Fritz in the house and Linda, but anyway, saw them. And would you believe uh, uh, my cousin is a member of this conference? Jerry and Betty. Good. To, Jerry is my first cousin. And uh, I, my side of the family is a little better looking than your side of the family. But uh, I, I, <laughs> yeah, we're almost twins. Yeah, but you know. But Jerry, it's good to be with you here. And would you believe that my youth group. Brother Armin, back during that day, is here. Would you guys raise your hand? Look at my youth group back here, the Thompsons. Would you? Goodness. The youth is gone. <laughs> and uh, I just want to, I want to say, and I hope I didn't miss anybody, but I, let, me, let me say this. I, I am very impressed. Uh, I've served on the conference board for close to 40 years on different capacities. They'll run me off after eight years from each one. And then I'd uh, get started back up again. Never wanted to be a superintendent. Had a Bishop Stewart came down and rode with me, uh, preached in my church. I took him back to the airport, and he asked me, would you become the superintendent? And I said, I would never covet that job. I did not want that. And uh, so I, because that is a tremendous responsibility. And your, your bishop and his wife uh, were just very uh, much a strength. To my son and I, this has been a rough year for us. Uh, lost the, the grandchild in the womb and lost uh, my daughter-in-law after finally years of uh, advertising that my son needed a wife. He finally got one and, of course, uh, tragically uh, passed away. And I just saw Brother Stewart. Isn't it Brother Stewart? They're right. Good to see you. College mate. And, uh, and then my wife eight weeks later. So it's been kind of a tough year. Uh, in 13 months, my dad dies. My mother-in-law, 43 years, uh, that she was my mother-in-law, died. And then we went into the other deaths. 
And so uh, consequently, because of that, my mind has been on what you've been singing a lot. When you have a lot of people on the other side, you tend to think of heaven quite a bit. And so I want to share with you about some end time things. In fact, this whole summer I've taught on it. And, uh, but before I say that, let me say one thing is I think you've got one of the finest ministers and uh, pastors that I think the uh, Heartland Conference could have, and that's my son. I'm a little prejudiced, but uh, when Justin was about three uh, years of age, we have two or three years of age, he's standing in a chair with my T-shirt on that goes down to his feet, and he's holding a Bible, and he's preaching so I knew from the very get-go that uh, he had the calling and, uh, and never afraid of people. I just couldn't. He'd get up in front of people. He was, I've seen him sing in front of uh, uh, 2,000 people and just like not nervous. It's just like it was a natural gift. Me, I was at Stratford when I started, and I started with my eyes closed. And a lady came up and says, we appreciate what you did, but open your eyes. I mean, you know. So... Uh, I, I had that fear. He didn't have that fear. So, anyway, I I love my son, and I think he's doing a good job at Purcell. And, and uh, amen. All right. We're going to read from James. I didn't give the folks back in the back my scripture. I don't know if they're going to stick it up there, but uh, the book of James, chapter 4. Let me get over here. Everybody doing all right? All right, James chapter 4, and um, let's make it 5. James chapter 5 and verse number 7 and 8. Just a little habit. Would you mind standing for the reading of the word? And I, I want to tell Brother Terry, thank you for coming and filling in that Sunday that my son just really couldn't handle it. And, and I appreciate you so much, and you're, you, you, you're right there with us. All right. Be patient, therefore, verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. Behold, the husbandman waiteth for the precious fruit of the earth and hath long patience for it until he receive the early and latter rain and then Bob Ely... Knocked that in the head last night. What a message. Be ye also patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. Patience until the coming of the Lord. Father, thank you for uh, Brother Ice's wonderful exhortation of mentoring and training young men and women underneath us that uh, have been through some things and walked paths that they need to learn about. So thank you for uh, encouraging us to go back to our churches and to continue that. But Lord, we, we recognize something. In the midst of uh, doing everything we can as though you will never come because we know that we're to work, yet we always have in the back of our mind that you are coming and that uh, it could be real soon. So I'm asking that you would give me grace to, to teach this and tonight that you'd give us a great service and bless this conference. Lord, may it be everything you've planned it to be and fulfill its destiny. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated.
when I talk about the coming of the Lord, and uh, how many of you in the room will admit that you're over 50? Anybody in the room over 50? Anybody in the room under 50? (laughs) Straight on. (laughs) Well, I tell you what, patience. In 1969, I almost did not go to Southwestern College because of the fact that uh, Brother Brown was the pastor of Stratford PH Church and uh, and he was preaching on the coming of the Lord and I felt like there wouldn't be enough time for me to go and get the training that I needed. And so, uh, but when the Lord laid Southwestern on my heart and went and met wonderful friends there, I realized that uh, some of the promises of God take a little patience. And the coming of the Lord has taken patience for, I was saying, we that are above 50, we preached and taught it and all that. And I was thinking of something I told my son the other day of the guy that, uh, and I, here's where I am with patience. I'm a little little difficult. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm the guy that stands in front of the uh, microwave and keeps punching it, you know, uh, just, you know that kind of thing. I, I can't stand Walmart lines. Anybody want to, you know, because the one I get in that is the shortest that I make sure I get in is the one that breaks down or the person's got to call to the back or go get a price or whatever. So I hate to wait. But I thought I'm like the guy that uh, who was one night in bed with his wife at 3 o'clock in the morning and the knock came on the door and it's cold and it's raining cats and dogs. And so he, he uh, goes and answers the door and this guy's drunk and he's asking for a push. And so he, and, and, uh, the, he says, man, it's 3 o'clock in the morning. It's, ra- it's cold. It's raining out there. I'm not going to help you. You're drunk. He shuts the door in the guy's face. He goes back to the bed and, the, and lays down. And the wife asks him, said, who was that? He says, a drunk. What do you want? He wants a push. She said, you going to help him? I'm not going to help him. It's, it's raining. It's cold. I'm not going to do that. She said, two months ago, we had some guys stop and help us. Remember our car broke down, and somebody came and helped us get to where we needed to go? I think you need to help the guys. So reluctantly, you know how your wives are. And so reluctantly, he gets out of bed and goes out and puts some rain gear on and goes out. And in the dark, he hollers out, are you still here? And the answer comes, yes. He says, do you still want to push? He said, yes. He said, I can't see you. Where are you? He says, I'm over here on the swing. Now, that takes patience. And you know, when it comes to the coming of the Lord, uh, it takes patience. It's like a soccer game. Now, I, I, I like to watch football. I like to watch a little basketball, different things. I like to watch games. But I like things that have a closure. And you know your, your team is about to win when it can close out in the last few seconds. But soccer games are different. Soccer game is not that way. You're not going to be like throw that ball in the hoop in the last second. Uh, the, the referee will have his watch and the incidentals of the game that took a little time off, only he knows how much time is left in the game. So he'll say, let's play. Now, the players do not know how long that span is going to be. So they don't know if they're going to put all their energy in at first. Will you fizzle out because you've got this length of time? You do not know the length of time that the game's going to last. So you have to play it in that mind of gauging. I don't know how long I've got to put into this. And I think that, to me, that's like the coming of the Lord. 
He says, I'm coming. But he's the one that's got the watch. I mean, we don't know. And we preach it, we believe it, we, you know, but, but the patience is, even though right now we do not know the time or the day, we can do what I do, did uh, yesterday or day before I was walking around and I saw a shadow behind me. Now, you know, I looked, I looked back at that shadow and I said, you know what that means? That, that's not me. That has no essence. But you know what it means? It means that the substance, which is me, is not far away from that. So when you see the shadow, you recognize that the real thing is just about to come. Now, you see, I remember high school, grade school, I remember, and you were the same way, when they told us you get out of class to go see a, a little play they'd put on. I mean, it's just a thrill to get out of class. And you'd go to that auditorium and you'd sit down and you'd hear them shuffling back there, back and forth, maybe moving furniture or whatever. And you knew that any moment that that curtain was going to rise, that everything was being placed, people were being put in place, everything, the characters, so that when they pulled it up, everything was ready to go. Did you know that I believe that God is moving and shuffling things on planet earth, making this thing ready for the curtain to go up, and we're going to ooh and ah when we see that curtain go up and everything he's prepared for us. Can you say amen? And I kind of feel like David when he heard the rustling in the mulberry tree, you know. That's when the move is on. And we kind of sense all this going on. And this summer, I really begin to feel this very heavy in my heart. In 2008, let me just give you this. 2008, I felt like starting that year, something was about to happen to America. I preached for almost two months on Get Ready. That was the title of my series, Get Ready, Get Ready, Get Ready. I said, I don't know what it is exactly, but something. And we know in 2008, in September of 2008, in October, what happened in America with the millions and millions. I had one man in my church that lost almost a half a million dollars from the fall of Wall Street. I, I'm telling you, something happened. And this year, the same feeling came over me. So this whole summer, I preached on this, so there's no way I can go over that material. I'm just going to give you a few highlights of what that summer meant to me this summer. Years before, how many of you remember David Wilkerson? We all know David Wilkerson. David Wilkerson, back years before 9-11, had a meeting in New York City in Manhattan with uh, many uh, renowned pastors now, when he met with them, they went up to the top of one of the major buildings there where they had a, a mirror, I mean, windows all the way around it so they could see. And he would carry the pastors around and let them look over the city, the dazzling lights, the beauty of the New York skyline. And he said, what do you see? And one would say this, one would say that. They would never give him what he wanted. He said, gentlemen, I'm going to tell you what I see. And he pointed out building after building after building. He said, every one of these are owned by a foreign investor. In fact, he was saying New York City has been bought up by foreign investors. Washington, D.C., 85% of Washington, D.C. is owned by foreign investors. We don't own but 15%. 80% of Los Angeles, 75% of Houston, Texas. Huge cities, and I could go on and on are not owned by Americans. We don't even own our own Wall Street right now. I ho hope you, you know that that's sold and there's a group in Atlanta owns it. But anyway, and then they're a foreign investor group. Uh, and so he said, this gentleman 
is a revelation of what took place, is taking place in America under a curse. And he took them to Deuteronomy 28 and said, one of the curses listed there is that you will be taken over by those who are not your own, they're foreign foreign people, and they will take over and begin to rule you. And he said, that's exactly what's happening to America through our finances. And that's, you know, to me it's amazing. Is it possible that America starting out with 13 colonies, 50 states, most powerful nation on the earth. Is it possible that we are headed toward an economic decline? And We're definitely in a spiritual decline, but we're heading. Are we going to be like the Roman Empire? Uh, You see cities all around us, like Detroit, has declared bankruptcy. They can't pay their bills. Now, I belong, I live in the state of Mississippi. 50% of the state of Mississippi is on welfare. Just a fact. But then I got to looking and finding out that a little under 50% of all America are on some kind of entitlement. A little over 50% of us work and put into it, but the others are on entitlements. And who am I talking to? <laughs> I'm talking about a lot of us, and I'm going to be drawing Social Security pretty soon, but if there's any left, would y'all quit sucking it dry? <laughs> yeah. But you begin to... Take away those entitlements because there's not enough money. And uh, anyway, th- these are so many things I could deal with. I, I watched the CNBC program not too long ago, and, and it was a senator, state senator, United States senator, and uh, two major companies had uh, consultants. And that, here's what they were saying. They said, we believe that large corporations are doing exactly what a, little, a lot of common people, including myself, are doing. They are hoarding money. They're putting it aside. And these top guns were saying these companies recognize something's on the horizon for America economically, and they're putting things away secretly. Now, if you opened your newspaper tomorrow or you were reading it on your iPhone, whatever, stock market crashes. China makes a recall on its loans. Walmart closes 2,000 more stores. You say, that'll never happen. Well, let me tell you, some of it's already beginning. Pastor Jack Matthews, pastor of the Church of God in Renz, Georgia, and he had a lady, uh, Mary Rouse, who was a a 98-year-old church member of his. And Mary was married to a Methodist preacher, but she had a calling of intercession. Now, this, back in the 1950s, she's praying in her house. And while she is praying, God reveals to her President Eisenhower is in the White House and he's about to sign an agreement with Turkey and another Mideastern country. And the Lord says, this signing of this agreement is a bad thing for America. Now, Mary... Calls the White House. Now, how many of you really believe you're really going to get the White House? You know, I mean, you get an operator, you know. Come on, some of us think we really got the president to sign that card for us, you know, happy birthday. But I'm just saying she got an operator. And so on the, she talked to the operator. She said to the operator, the president is meeting uh, in such and such place in the White House. He's meeting with these people. Uh, this is what they're discussing. He's about to sign an agreement with them. 
And the operator, t- she says, the president needs to know. Well, evidently somebody got to know because barely got the phone down. The FBI swarmed her house. And when they swarmed her house, they came in and treated her and thought she was a spy. Because they said this, how did you know who he was meeting with? How did you know the dialogue that they were talking about? She had given too many details, and they said, and they interviewed her, or really didn't interview her. They uh, challenged her uh, on these facts, and and she said, I'm just a, a Methodist pastor's wife. And I prayed, and they finally found out that's the truth. They called the president and said, this woman in prayer saw all of this. He canceled the meeting. And for some time after that, President Eisenhower's wife sent cards. And if you went over to Mary Rouse's house, she would show you the cards from President Eisenhower's wife saying, thank you, thank you, thank you for doing this. Now, Mary also dreamed and saw the next president of the United States would be Catholic. Now, this is the 1950s. We know who it was. Yeah. But here's what she saw for the future. She saw that she saw the White House and she saw the dome of the White House covered in blackbirds and in their beaks were locks, padlocks. And the Lord spoke to her and said, there will come someone from 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue that one day will endorse the closing and padlocking of every Protestant church in America. Under their influence, that'll be what it's all about. Now, you'd think, this is in the 1950s. Now, today in post-Christian America, we can kind of get a little idea that maybe that could happen, but it was unheard of in her day. Yeah, and so she saw these being padlocked. Now, I wonder, anytime you have something like that happen, you have a forerunner. Could we have a Houston, Texas forerunner of a mayor that says to five pastors, I want your sermons? And it, if they hadn't shut that thing down, it would have gone much further than that. And all you need is one case that does, did, doesn't get shut down. And you have a forerunner of things that are going to happen. Let me tell you, the churches that you and I have been raised in all of our life and the freedoms we've had and doing what we wanted to do all, is about to change. I'm not wanting it to change, but it's about to change. I'm in China all the time. I'll be in China this spring. I go over there every year, several times a year usually. And I'm telling you, uh, there's a fervor, there's a level of dedication, there's something about them, and I've been in services, uh, in one of my teachings with 120 people, they, that group of people were over 10 million people. I was able to train these leaders over 10 million people. It was an awesome opportunity. But the weeping and the crying and their prayer meetings at 4 and 5 o'clock in the morning put anything we'd ever do here to shame. Why? Because they know any time the law can come in and take over. And many of them, most of them, have spent time in prison. And I believe that one day when we begin to face persecution, it won't be a bad thing. When money goes down the tubes, it won't be a bad thing. Because how does the devil sell drugs? It takes money. How does the devil have horrible movies that he makes? It takes money. You begin to take some money out and you bring us back to the depression of the 30s and all of a sudden the devil's playthings are about gone under that kind of system. So it isn't a bad thing. You just may lose your microwave. 
Won't be able to punch it. How many of you know William Branham? If you've never seen William Branham's YouTube clips, you need to do that. Now, William Branham, to me, is a sad case of a man that was deceived in the latter part of his life to believe he was Elijah. But that doesn't discount the anointing on that man to be able to be used. I know that Peter Popoff and a lot of those guys came and did a fake thing. But this man, I don't believe, was a fake. I believe he was able to read people's mail and be able to do powerful things under the word of knowledge. He was teaching in Jefferson, Indiana, and just before he was going to teach Sunday school class, as he was getting up and just about to teach, God downloaded on him seven prophecies. Just pow, 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 pow. And he gave them. This is 1933. He gave seven prophecies. I want to give them to you real quick. First vision that he had was a man named Benito Mussolini will lead a fascist government and will invade Ethiopia. And he saw that and it happened 30 months after he made the prophecy. But he said the man's demise is going to be bad. The man will be brutally killed and he'll be spit on. Well, when I was in school, I saw the film of that. Of when he was trying on April 28, 1945, this is 12 years after the prophecy, trying to flee to Switzerland. They caught him, took him to the village square, brutally murdered him, hung him upside down, and everybody that wanted to came by and spit on him. I saw that film. Many of you did too, probably. Happened exactly as he saw. Second vision, he saw a little Australian man named Adolf Hitler coming into power. He said, there will come a day when America will enter into war. This is 1933 he's saying this. America will go into a war and many American boys will lose their, lose their life because of this little Australian. We know that Roosevelt on his fourth term declared war. Third prophecy, the th third vision was three isms. He said there are going to be three major isms come, fascism, Nazism, and communism. He says the first two will fall apart and the last one will last on and on. How many of you know communism is very much alive? I find that in China when I'm over there quite a bit. The fourth vision was he predicted a, an advancement in technology. Now, this is 1933. He said, there will come a day when cars will be run by a remote control. They didn't even know who, what remote control was. Be run by remote control. He said, I see a man in the front seat leaning over, and there will be people in the back seat playing games. How many of you know that uh, your kids, what do they do in the back seat? <laughs> yeah, watch the video. And he says, uh, he, he, he's not, and I saw this, I saw uh, this about a month or two ago on TV, and they were running this car, this guy was sitting there reading newspaper or whatever, and the car was just going all over the place. So that was his fourth vision. Fifth vision was he witnessed a decay in the morality of America. And sorry about that, ladies. Don't get mad at me. He said women would start cutting their hair. Oh, boy, don't look at the woman beside you. But he said they would not only cut their hair, they would wear pants. They'd put on men's clothing. Now, we know this is 1933. In 1933, most women did not cut their hair. If you wore pants, you were probably a harlot in the neighborhood. It just didn't happen. Until when? 1942, when women took over the role of men in the factories, women began to wear pants. You can study it. That's when they began to really start wearing them. And so, and he said, not only that, I see women almost naked. He said, they're wearing nothing but fig, a couple of fig leaves. 
Well, we know what that was in the 1960s. We had Rock L. Welch in 1966, and that particular group, Elvis comes along, and they're all shaking underneath those bikinis. So he saw bikinis before uh, that was unheard of in 1933. They wore their swimsuits down to their ankles. The sixth vision, though, was concerning a woman. He said, and I'm going to quote him. Here's the exact quote. Remember, it's him, in that day, before he comes... Before he comes, that a woman, now you all keep this wrote down, there will be a powerful woman raised up, either to be president or dictator or some great powerful woman in the United States. And she'll, America in parenthesis, America, will sink under the influence of women, end quote. He goes on to say that she will be a very wicked-hearted woman. Could we get close to that? <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I see, I'm going to tell you what. If Hillary wins this election, you'll remember this service. <laughs> because under his prediction, he says the fall of America will come under the leadership of a woman. In the last and seventh vision that Branham had was he saw an explosion destroy the entire land, leaving the United States smoldering and in ruins. He commented that as far as his eyes can see, he says, I saw craters and smoking piles of debris. Actually, in 1933, when he said this later, David Wilkerson would write, set a trumpet to your mouth and say the exactly, he says America is going to be destroyed by fire. He said, "There's going." To, I'm reading David Wilkerson now. Sudden destruction's coming. Few will escape. Unexpectedly, in one hour, a hydrogen holocaust will engulf America, and this nation will be no more. He said, "An attack from Russia and the Great Holocaust follows an economic collapse of America, and the enemy will make its move when we are weak and helpless because America will not repent." In March of 2009, David Wilkerson gave this final warning before he died in an automobile accident, and I quote, An earth-shattering calamity is about to happen. It's going to be so frightening that we're all going to tremble. Even the godly among us, major cities all across America, will experience riots in blazing fires such as we saw in Watts, Los Angeles years ago. There will be riots and fires in cities worldwide. There will be looting. End of quote. Let me ask you a question. Why did they sell their properties and give the money away or whatever they did with it in Acts chapter 4? Now, I know that we have the Pentecostal answer, but I, I'm going to give you an introduction to another kind of answer. Uh, we would think under the anointing of the Holy Spirit and being filled with the Holy Spirit that you're just charitable, and that was part of it. We know Barnabas did that. But, hey, could it be, though, just to introduce you to the fact that Jesus in Matthew 24 sometime later earlier than this, had said this entire city is going to be encompassed by armies and this thing's coming down and the property basically that you own is what you think that thing through is not going to be worth a whole lot. And do you know that most Christians did sell their property and moved out of Jerusalem to a community over the Jordan called Pella? They moved to Pella, which meant when Titus came in in 68 AD and leveled the city, not hardly one Christian was found in the city is because they listened to Jesus years before, heeded what he was saying and took the warning and got out of there. Did you know that through the Bible there have been those warnings? 
Acts chapter 11. Agabus says there's a plague coming. What do they do? They begin to take up money for the Judean believers to help them out. And it came. Do we know that Jeremiah stands and he speaks, this thing's coming down. How long? 23 years. It didn't come immediately, but he warned and says, you can prepare, you get ready for it. God always gives you time. Jezebel, you're going to be eaten by dogs. But she's 10 years later thinking with all of her sweet self, this will never happen. But 10 years later, Jehu comes riding in. God always gives warnings. In Revelation chapter 13, verses 1 through 3, John describes the beast. And he gives a gross composite of what Daniel has in chapter 7. He just takes Daniel 7 and he moves it over here and he gives the composite of it. I'm not going to give you all that, but I will say the general body of this beast is a leopard, like unto a leopard. And a leopard has all three colors of all major races. The leopard's its coat is brown like Asians, its stomach is white like Caucasians, its spots are black like African people, and it is multinational, multiracial, racial, and it is the beast. He'll come on the scene like that. And we know how he's going to do it. Economically. And he's going to require that you have that mark. Am I right? The mark is supposed to be where? Come on, you people that know the Bible. Where? Two places. Forehead and the right hand. Let me talk just a minute about President Obama and the Affordable Care Act. I know every one of you want that, voted that in, but let me, let me talk about that. Every American president that enters the Oval Office has an intent of leaving a legacy. If you go back into every president, they all had a pet issue, something that they wanted to be known for when they left there. Harry Truman, how many of you know that what his was? Sure, it's easy. His work on getting Israel into being a state, signing that paper, and, and that was a good legacy for him. I thank God for him. Amen. Jimmy Carter, the peace agreement between Egypt and Israel, right? Ronald Reagan, the fall of the Iron Curtain. He's known for that and many other good things. George Herbert Walker Bush, the liberation of Kuwait. Yeah, from the invasion of Saddam Hussein. Bill Clinton. We won't talk about Bill and his legacy, but he thought his legacy was the recovery of the economy and, and, and causing the budget to be balanced. That's what he, you know, but we don't remember him for that. Anyway, George W. Bush, what was his? His war on terror. So we take it over there. They don't bring it here. That was his legacy. But Barack Obama, our president now, I want to quote him. Here's his quote. Quote, health care will be my legacy. So don't mess with it. End of quote. Now, what does that mean? I believe this guy was Church of God. I, I, I believe the, the, I didn't get the exact description of him, but uh, he's, he is flying from Pensacola to Orlando. And he has just preached like a camp meeting service, whatever it was. I, I think it was a big meeting, and he preached it. And he's on the airplane doing what we do that some of us that fly love to do, and that is get somewhere that nobody bothers you, 
You're not smiling anymore. You can be yourself and just kind of relax. And he's going to—he's on the red eye flight. It's at night, so he's hoping to be left alone. And he sits down. On one side of him is this colonel, must have been right across the aisle. This military colonel in the army, and sitting right beside him was this this doctor. And this doctor had the gift. Now I've accused my son of sometimes having this gift. And he's got it. I mean, he can do it. He does it well. Uh, when he's in the first grade, we, our first grade teacher said this. Said, you know, Justin, when, he, when you have a break and, you, and he can talk, he goes night But he knows when to shut up. I mean, he'll shut that thing down. <laughs> well, he said that doctor had the gift and I wanted to rest. And he said, I, he said you know where I'm going? And he didn't really care where you're going, you know, buddy. And yeah, where am I? Yeah. He said, I am on a medical board. They just were finishing the touches on this entire draft to vote in the medical bill. And he said, I'm one of the, I'm one of the people that's just helping make this thing work. He said, we have a meeting in Orlando of these top doctors and whatever and said, uh, we, we've run into a glitch. The, the glitch is with our implantable device. And that, that preacher said, when I, he said that, I got awake. And I said, you're what? He said, I've been working for some time on an implantable device in a human body. And our problem was, and this is a government-backed program. He said, our problem was the blood types. I found out later blood B, type B was, I believe, one of them. But we had blood types that would reject it. And wouldn't accept it into the body. It just wouldn't work. And he said, we've worked through every one of the glitches. And now we're ready to go. And this thing is earmarked 2018. The time frame is 2018. See, most people do not know on pages 1502 to 1510 in the bill, it alludes to medical devices that can be used for surveillance, including storing electronic records. And on page 1502... It mentions an implantable device, and it says this device is to be planted within 36 months of the passing of this bill. But the reason why, and that was May. The three years was up in May. But the reason they haven't said anything about it is because they didn't have it tuned. And now the goal is 2018 that anybody that is on Obamacare will be required to have a chip implant in your right hand. Before Joe Biden was elected vice president, he was the senator from Delaware, he was speaking at the court after confirmation of Chief Justice Roberts, and here's what he said to him. He asked the Chief Justice Roberts, if you, would you rule against a mandatory implantable microchip to track American citizens? And here's what he did. I warn you to be Justice Roberts that you will deal with this during your tenure, if you're approved the Supreme Court. While ministering in Cincinnati, Ohio, Perry Stone said a pastor uh, that he was preaching there with uh, had a son that worked for a barge on the Missouri River. He said the boy, uh, the barge company had been contacted by Homeland Security and that everyone on the barge had to have an implantable chip. This, is happening. this happened already. 
But everyone had to have an implantable chip in the right hand. The boy was raised in the church. He was raised church of God. So evidently, he knew all this. And he said, this sounds like the mark of the beast. I'm not going to take it. They said, we'll fire you. They threatened to fire him. But he went in and negotiated. And so they gave him a card that would cost $800 with a chip in it that he could bypass the implant. But everybody else on the barge, other than that one young man, already had the implant. The company called Tech News Daily reported that an agency had spent $50,000 in tracking system for Head Start students and to use those tags in tracking children at school. Wired Magazine, World Net Daily, reported a California school is already using $115,000 in stimulus money to have children embedded with RFID chips to track their movements already happened. The selling point was it'll save 3,000 hours of dealing with attendance records. Some time ago, a large company in Canada required all of its employees to have the chip implant as well. Three Pentecostal men in the company said, we will not do it. Uh, it went to court. You can probably pull it up and read about it, a court case. They were permitted with that card to get in, but all the rest of them have the chips. The Washington Post, I'm not pulling this out of, that, out of my hair. I mean, I'm not just telling you stuff. You can look it up. Washington Post reported that the House of Delegates in Virginia were scheduled to vote on a bill that would protect Virginians from attempts by employers or insurance companies to implant microchips on their bodies, in their bodies, against their will. And that was from the Washington Post. I've got enough material to stay here all day, so I'm just going to say a few more things. Okay, I'm telling you, I've spent probably hundreds of hours of research this summer. And if I feel like there's anything in my bones that says this thing is coming to a close, and one thing is, even if it's not the coming of the Lord, America's status, the dollar bill, a lot of these things, I know you can get a lot of kooks out there and you can get a lot of these individuals that are seeing something behind every tree, but I'm telling you, you can talk to top people that are not goofy and say that America is about to come to a closure. I'm going to tell you this. I believe, I hate to see this, but I believe the lifestyle we've been used to for so long to do anything we want to do, go eat when we want to eat, do all these things, could be changing in a matter of months. What does that mean to me? Well, I think it all points to one thing, my shadow. I think this thing is all coming, culminating to an end. Because Jesus, the Bible says it like this. It says that he's going to come, and when he comes, he's going to come as lightning. Shining from where? How fast is lightning? 186,282 miles per second. Now, I want to tell you, uh, out here, on, I like Colorado. Anybody ever lived in Colorado, gone to Colorado? I like 75 miles an hour on the, oh, 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 on the interstate. Anybody like, I like 75. I like Texas back roads, 70 miles an hour on Tulane. And then you come to Mississippi. We're still in the dark ages. But did you know that that's almost going backwards upside the guys when they took off in the Apollo? When the Apollo took off, they were going 15,000 miles an hour. And when they left the orbit of the earth, and the boost came off, they were going 25,000 miles an hour. That's kicking it. But did you know that 25,000 miles an hour is going backwards, almost, up beside 186,000 miles per second? Did you know what somebody did? Uh, 
The Bible says when Jesus comes, he's coming in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. Did you know the circumference of this earth is 25,000 miles around it? And if you take 180,000 and you divide it into 25,000, you know what you come up with? One-seventh. Someone said the twinkling of an eye is one-seventh of a second, which means when Jesus comes, he'll circle the entire globe in one-seventh of a second, which means if you have to run over to somebody's house and say, forgive me, too late. Let's have revival, too late. If that happened right now, you couldn't even just one blink and you're out. And I tell you, one day that's going to be a reality. That's going to happen if I believe the Bible, right? And I believe that here's the challenge. I told my people, I said, your blood's not going to be on my hands. I said, I'm going to, I'm going to do everything I can to get you ready for an economic fall, if we've got to put some things aside, whatever. But I said, above everything like that, you got people that are lost. We need to get concerned with people. We need, to, we need to recognize this thing's closing down. Why don't we get serious in this hour? And I tell you what, it began to sober up when I began to share facts, show clips for two months. Our people began to sober up that this thing is really going to happen soon. So, Lord, I'm just asking you right now, Help every pastor in this room, every leader in this room to begin to prepare their people. Yes, we want to grow our numbers. Yes, we want to mentor people. Yes, we want to do all those things. And we don't know when this game's going to end. We know you've got the watch. We know, Lord, you only know the time. But I believe you told unto us, when you begin to see these things begin to come to pass, lift up your head, your redemption draws nigh. Lord, I believe that it won't be long before we hear the trumpet sound. A day like today, it was just a normal day when Enoch was walking across the ground on the warm sun coming down on his shoulders and smelling the flowers in the field. And all of a sudden, he was not. You just came in a normal day and he was gone. And Lord, one day you'll just come in that second, in that split second, one-seventh of a second, you'll come and, Lord, we'll be out of here. Lord, when we stand before you as pastors and leaders, we want to be able to stand before you and hear you saying, well done. No, you didn't warn people. You didn't tell people. You know, I want to, I want to tell people, get ready, get ready, get ready. Ready or not, here I come. Lord, help us to do that. In Jesus' name.